Hi, I'm Russell Nolte from Wannabe Press, and you're listening to Soundtrack Alley. Hello, I am Randy Andrews, and today I'll be taking us into history with talking about the film The Untouchables, directed by Brian De Palma. I'll discuss the cast, the background, some of the history events, and of course, the amazing score by Ennio Morricone. It's all today on Soundtrack Alley. Hello everyone, I've always enjoyed this film, The Untouchables. The train station scene gets me every time. So let's get into a little bit about the cast on this film. Robert De Niro tracked down Al Capone's original tailors and had them make him some identical clothing for the movie, which is pretty obsessed. (laughs) Albert H. Wolf, the last survivor of the real Untouchables, was a consultant on the film and helped Kevin Costner with his portrayal of Elliot Ness. Brian De Palma met Bob Hoskins over a drink in Los Angeles to discuss playing Al Capone. If De Palma's first choice of Robert De Niro were to pass on the role, since De Palma had not yet said yes, or Not De Palma, but De Niro. Uh, Hoskins told De Palma he would do it if he were available. When De Niro finally took the role, De Palma sent Hoskins a thank you note, and the studio paid Hoskins, who had a pay-or-play deal, 20,000 pounds. Hoskins called De Palma and asked if there were any other movies he did not want him to be in. Uh, That was pretty funny. Uh, Robert De Niro insisted on wearing the same style of silk underwear that Al Capone wore, even though it would never be seen on camera. The producers, knowing De Niro's reputation as a method actor, gave in. Robert De Niro hadn't much time to gain the extra weight needed for his role, so he had to wear pads and pillows for the desired effect of looking like a chunkier Capone. According to director Brian De Palma and producer Art Linson, in the DVD documentary, it was Sir Sean Connery's idea to film the blood oath scene between Ness and Malone in a Catholic church. Originally, it was going to take place on the street in the same scene that follows the church scene. Connery felt that a church would be the only safe place in Chicago where the two characters would make such a commitment to fight Capone. The fashion icon Giorgio Armani, who provided the costumes for the film, told Palma that he should cast Don Johnson as Elliot Ness. Johnson wore Armani on television every week on Miami Vice, and Armani called Johnson his male muse. Sir Sean Connery turned up to the shoot in his golf shoes, or golf clothes. They did a close open, and Sean was dismissed for the day. He came back after a full day of golf, acted for five minutes, then went to go home. Andy Garcia and Charles Martin Smith grabbed him after the scene and said, that was very clever of you. You just got uh, back from golf, turn up for five minutes, do your scene, and that's it. Connery turned to them and said, This is not my first barbecue. Valentino Chemo, who played Capone's bodyguard, Frank Rio, the one Ness punches in the nose and shoots at the beginning of the rail station shootout, later went on to reprise the role of Rio in the syndicated series, The Untouchables. Mickey Rourke turned down the role of Elliot Ness, and George Carlin, 
is the voice of the radio broadcast program to which the Ness family was listening in the living room. Now this was also interesting. Marlon Brando refused the $5 million for two weeks work as Capone during early casting. Now, Robert De Niro previously won an Oscar for his portrayal of Vito Corleone in The Godfather Part Two, and Andy Garcia received the Oscar nomination for playing his grandson, Vincent Corleone, in The Godfather Part Three. Uh, in addition, the character of Santino Sonny Corleone, the father of Garcia's character, which was played by James Kahn, uh, and the son of De Niro, were all named after Al Capone's son. There had been talk that Brian De Palma was going to direct a prequel titled The Untouchables, Capone Rising. Nicolas Cage was considered to play a young Al Capone in that film at one time. Now, Robert De Niro admitted his performance was heavily influenced by Rod Steiger's portrayal in Al Capone in 1959. Now, even though Don Johnson was offered the role of Elliot Ness, he declined. Kevin Costner, a good friend of Johnson, later accepted the part, and Johnson said he congratulated Costner on getting the role, never telling him he was offered the part first until several years later in order not to offend Costner, nor steal any thunder away from his acclaim. Costner and Johnson co-starred in Tin Cup. Although he had appeared in well over 60 films, eventually becoming one of the most famous movie stars and has won numerous film awards, including three Golden Globes, During the highly successful career that spanned more than 50 years, his role in the film resulted in Sir Sean Connery's only Academy Award win, an Oscar for Best Actor in a Supporting Role, bestowed upon him during the 1988 ceremony. It was also his only Academy Award nomination. As Sir Sean Connery officially retired from acting in 2006, his Oscar for this film is likely to be his only one awarded for a specific acting role. Patricia Clarkson's, uh, this was her film debut, and William Hurt was even considered for Elliot Ness. Man, there were a lot of people in that running. Now also, Robert De De Niro and Brian De Palma This was actually their last film together as of November 2017. Now, Andy Garcia was an interesting character. He's Cuban, portraying an Italian who's passing him off as a non-Italian American. Now, De Palma met with Tom Berenger and Nick Nolte to see if they were even interested in Elliot Ness. Now also, Mary Elizabeth Mastronino was considered to play the role of Elliot Ness's wife, Catherine. Now also, when you think about it, Sean Connery and Kevin Costner both were in Robin Hood films. First, we look at Sean Connery in Robin and Marion, which was a horrendous rendition of the Robin Hood legend. And then also uh, Kevin Costner in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, uh, where Connery even makes a cameo as King Richard the Lionheart. This is also one of the two films where Costner had appeared alongside two previous Robin Hood actors, the other being Russell Crowe in Man of Steel, and Crowe also played the title character in Robin Hood. So, the only scenes that Kevin Costner and De Niro were together in were the scenes in the hotel lobby and the courtroom. Now, Jack Cahoe plays Walter Payne. Sir Sir Sean Connery played the role of Jack Cahoe in The Molly Maguires, which is interesting. Alright, so let's get into some of the more technical aspects on the film. When Elliot Ness tells the guy who's asking what gender the newborn baby was, Ness says it's a boy. 
that the boy's name is John James. Look closely at Sean Connery and Kevin Costner when he says James. An obvious nod to Sir Sean Connery's most famous role, James Bond. Brian De Palma and Robert De Niro worked on Greetings and Hi Mom and in this movie. Both were surnames started with D as well. Uh, For the scene in which Malone is killed, Sean Connery did not expect the squibs to be as explosive as they were. After the first take, Connery was taken to the hospital with dust and fake blood in his eyes. In real life, Al Capone, knowing that the killing a probation agent or prohibition agent would only lead to more trouble than he or his outfit could actually handle, actually he had a non-violence order to his men concerning this the untouchables. While Capone did repeatedly attempt to buy them off, he never once attempted to kill Ness nor any of his men. The only reason there was much more violence in the film was to add to the drama. The scene where Al Capone pulls out a baseball bat at the dinner party and suddenly beats to death one of his men is based on the true incident which happened on May 20 or May 7, 1929. Two of Capone's most feared hitmen, Albert and Salmi and John Scalzi had hatched a plot to kill Capone and take over his gang. Capone got wind of it and invited all of his associates to a dinner party, and this included those two men. In the middle of the party, Capone pulled out a baseball bat, battered both men to death, then shot them both in the head. A conflicting version of the story has Tony Joe Batters, Accardo, one of Capone's hitmen, as the man who bludgeoned the traitors to death. An envelope is dropped off at the desk of Elliot Ness in one scene, and it's assumed to be a bribe, but the amount inside is never revealed. In real life, Al Capone promised Elliot Ness that two $1,000 notes would be on his desk every Monday morning if he turned a blind eye to his bootlegging activities. An enormous amount of money then and Ness refused the bribe and in later years struggled with money. He died almost broke at the age of 54. Despite the final courtroom scene in the uh, Al Capone and Elias Ness never came face to face during their battles, which is really interesting. Though the patron saints of police are Michael the Archangel and Saint Sebastian, Irish police officers often carried St. Jude medals, the patron saint for hopeless causes. And the movie portrays Elliot Ness as being happily married and his wife having a daughter and a baby son. In real life, Elliot Ness married three times. He was married to his first wife, Edna Stalley, during the time frame where he was pursuing Al Capone, and the only child he ever had was an adopted son. Now in the original script, the final gunfight had Elliot Ness and George Stone battling Capone gunmen on a stopped train. De Palma conceived the gunfight on the steps of the Chicago Union Station when Paramount Pictures decided that staging the scene and finding a 1930s period train would be too expensive. Also in real life, Elliot Ness brought the only non-tax-related charges against Al Capone, which resulted in 5,000 separate Volstead Act indictments. And there were originally a different ending for the movie. It was to have a scene with the camera shooting a close-up of Robert De Niro's face as it was being warmed up for a shave. Then the camera would have pulled back while still focused on Capone, to show the audience that he had reporters around him, much like the opening scene of the film, but this time he was in his jail cell. Elliot Ness 
and his role in bringing down Al Capone had been completely forgotten by the time of his death in 1957. No Chicago newspaper carried the news of his passing. His heroic reputation only began with a posthumous publication of the Untouchables book he had co-written with Oscar, Oscar Fraley, uh, and the television series adapted from it. The set of Capone's personal barbershop in the Lexington Hotel included even small items such as cologne bottles, shaving brushes that belonged to the real Al Capone. And Brian De Palma later modified the battle on the train sequence, so he changed it and used it in Carlito's Way, which is a different film that he directed. So he also, De Palma took note of the train station from the Russian movie Battleship Potemkin. The sailors who get caught in the crossfire in this movie were a tribute to Potemkin. So is the baby carriage rolling down the steps, which was also parodied in other films such as Woody Allen's Bananas, Terry Gilliam's Brazil, as well as The Naked Gun. The character of Oscar Wallace was loosely based on Frank Wilson, the IRS agent who worked to indict Capone for income tax evasion. Wilson had been working on this project since 1928 and had next to nothing to do with Ness and the Untouchables in real life. Wilson was not killed by Capone, though Capone reportedly placed a contract on his life, which was never carried out. So a lot of the cases in this movie <laughs> never actually happened. The radio show listed, listened by Elliot Ness and his wife is an actual episode of Amos and Andy. In the episode, they have brought a clunker for their new cab company from their friend George Kingshift Stevens. Now, Paramount Pictures made this film because they still held the film rights to Elliot Ness' autobiography, which they used to produce the television series The Untouchables. Paramount intended to make this, like so many other films since, a big screen adaption of a television series. However, Brian De Palma and the producer and screenwriter, uh, such as David Mamet, all felt that they didn't want to adapt the series, so they took on their own dramatic license with the story and the ev true events that inspired it in order to make what they felt would be a good big screen epic, which they succeeded very well. Now, Brian De Palma previously directed Scarface, and which was a loose remake of Scarface back in 1932. And when Agent George Stone was introduced, Malone finds out that his real name is Giuseppe Petrie, and he was born in Italy. In Italian, Giuseppe Petri can be literally translated as Joseph Stone. Only the filmmakers know why George was chosen, because it was translated into Giorgio in Italian. Now, when Capone's men were trying to smuggle the bookkeeper, Jack Cahoe, out of town, they were going to put him on board a train in Miami. In real life, Al Capone owned a luxurious, luxurious mansion in Miami, and presumably in the film, the mob was going to have a bookkeeper hide in Capone's mansion. Ooh. Brian De Palma said that at first he was a little reluctant to cast Kevin Costner because he was not a well-known actor at the time. But this really uh, pole vaulted uh, Costner's career and made it so much better. Uh, the first liquor raid was shot on LaSalle Street with period cars and extras. Ness and his men exit the Rookery building between Adams and Quincy, enter the City National Bank and Trust at 208 South LaSalle. The building in the background with the clock is the Chicago Board of Trade, located at LaSalle and Jackson. And according to Brian De Palma, in the making of the documentary, Mel Gibson was even interested in Elliot Ness, but couldn't commit to the role because he was dealing with Lethal Weapon. Now, among different movies, Mission Impossible and this film 
are not only uh, the only films that Brian De Palma had as high-grossing films, but are both adaptions of television series distributed by Paramount. And some of the other productions you may think of for Brian De Palma would be like Snake Eyes. Now, uh, any police officer or federation agent seen drinking alcohol on screen in this film was killed. And it makes sense because of prohibition. And the body count in this film is 24 bodies. That's a lot of people. So the most interesting thing about this film, and the most iconic thing about it, is the score is composed by Ineco, Ineo Morricone. He really brought out all the stops for the score, making it feel very authentic to the time period. The score opens with a strength of the righteous, which introduces the main action theme, one of five major themes in the score. As electronic beats accompany a repeating five-note phrase heard on low-end piano and then strings, all with a wailing harmonica, harmonica accompaniment. It's a portentous opening to the film and score, particularly dark, yet somehow wonderfully colorful as well. Now, interestingly, of all the melodic themes in the score he could choose from, when he performs the music in concert, it's a dark action piece that Morricone chooses. The harmonica theme without the five-note accompanying figure is heard in the brilliant but brief in the elevator. The man with matches is another reprise of the material, and this time filled with even more tension, and on the extended version of the album, appended with a brief Nitty Shoots Malone adding to a brilliant piece of anguish string writing at the end of the piece. And the previously unreleased Courthouse Chase is a brilliant variant on the material, on this album providing a good introduction to the familiar on the rooftops, which is the score's primary action cue. The most attractive of the more melodic themes is undoubtedly Ness and his family, a simply gorgeous, super sweet melody that seems to be a precursor to Cinema Paradiso, which the composer would score the following year. There's also the cheerfully named Death theme, which is a jazzy tinge to it, and this one feels like a precursor to Bugsy from its introduction in Ness meets Malone through the full arrangement shortly before the end of the score. Now Al Capone, he gets a wonderfully comic theme with wah-wah trumpets, which only appears a couple times in the score, but certainly leaves an impression. It will probably sound downright silly to most people today, but it does work fantastically in the film and is tremendously entertaining away from it. The final theme is perhaps the score's most famous. It's briefly hinted at in Ali, or Ness meets Wallace and Ness meets Stone, before being fully unveiled in Victorious, and is used by Morricone for the most triumphant moments of the film, including the most brilliant presentation for the end titles. It's full of heroism, and it's a massive piece of music for the full orchestra designed to get you off your chair and raise your arms in delight. It's utterly unrestrained, and it's amazing that a Hollywood-based composer would ever have attempted anything like it, but Morricone, he pulls it off perfectly. Now also, two pieces of suspense music stand out. Waiting at the border sees ever more frantic-sounding wind figures built gradually, gaining string and later brass accompaniment along the way, over a constant electronic pulse with percussive hits. Morricone's suspense music isn't always the easiest listening when taken outside the film, but this is brilliant. Then comes the astonishing machine gun lullaby, Speaking as a Morricone fan, 
there's occasions when I can hear this piece of music and really appreciate the audacity of it and how it's almost like a child's lullaby and a child's music box melody repeats endlessly with the discordant accompaniment from the strings and later other sections of the orchestra to create a masterpiece of tension. And it's perfect. So today I've chosen a few pieces of music uh, to be able to play for the episode. First I'll play The Strength of the Righteous, Murderous Goodnights, and The Untouchables. I love how these cues really heighten the tension for the movie and we get a real feel for what Al Capone was like and how the police handled it. I hope you enjoy these. Thank you. 
Alright, so next, I'd like to play Al Capone, Four Friends, and The Man with the Matches, and Nettie Shoots Malone. This proves the point that there was serious gang activity in Chicago in the 1930s. It was dangerous and deceptive. Ineo really brings this out through the music, and really gives us some specific tension moments. I hope you enjoy these.
Sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme music. You can find his work at xanderscores.com. Lastly today, I'll play Machine Gun Lullaby, Courthouse Chase, On the Rooftop, Nettie Falls, and Death Theme. What I like about these is the resolution that despite Capone trying to be in control... The Untouchable stopped him at every turn. Wonderful action pieces and motifs for this film. So you can find me through Twitter at Soundtrack Alley, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, and Podbean, of course. You can email me at SoundtrackAlley at Yahoo.com and follow me on Facebook. And until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take the time to review my podcast on iTunes or even listen to it on Podbean. With your review, it helps me get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley. If you are an Apple podcast, please give the show a five-star rating. Check out the content over at SoundtrackAlley.com, as well as Cinematic Sound Radio, where most of my new material is posted. If you have a comment, question, or concern, please email me at SoundtrackAlley at gmail.com.